probably be having an aha moment with that. Um, the last line of it was uh, Joshua, Joseph, saying, I don't know if I will be able to teach him anything. And what a question to ask about having the Son of God born to you. So thank you for presenting that skit. Can you give them a hand? Our passage today is from the book of Matthew, chapter 1. I invite you to turn there if you have a Bible or if you care to on your phone. Matthew, chapter 1. First, we see Joseph's unusual compassion. Joseph's unusual compassion. Matthew's going to tell us significant events. He's saying to us, Listen up. Here's the skinny about this situation. He's going to tell us something very important. This truly is a birth to celebrate. And he starts this way. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. This special birth is something to rejoice over. This, this is the birth of the century. In fact, the birth forever. This is the most significant birth of all time. And Matthew goes on to say, his mother Mary, about this Christ child, his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child. Mary, or Miriam in Hebrew, is a wonderful, godly woman, young woman, probably a teenager. The Gospel of Luke, that story is all about her. But now as we turn to Matthew chapter 1, it's all about him. It's all about Joseph. From his point of view, Joseph had been pledged to be married. Today, we would say engaged. Only then it had a whole lot more meaning. Now, if you have a guy and a girl today engaged and they break it off, it's, it's not that big a deal. It's not all that surprising. I read a Carolyn Hacks column some time ago about a woman writing in. She was kind of miffed. She had been invited to a wedding uh, of a, the daughter of a friend of hers. And so she had purchased a gift and she came to the wedding and she gave the gift. And, and then they had the exchanging of the vows. And in the exchange, and I should preface it, she, uh, she was engaged to be married to Ben. But when the vows began, it went like this. Do you take Corey? to be your lawfully wedded husband. And the person was kind of startled by that. And after the marriage was over, she goes up to the mother of the bride and she said, hey, was that a mistake? <laughs> kind of sheepishly, the mother said, well, no. Uh, she broke up with her husband-to-be about three weeks before the wedding. But then she asked another boy if he would be willing to marry and he, he said, 
Sure, why not? <laughs> well, what do you think happened to that marriage? It just lasted a few months, but they kept the gifts. <laughs> oh. Now, hop in the time machine and travel back 20 centuries. Engagement meant a whole lot more back then. In fact, it was so serious that if you were engaged, you had to go through a divorce to cancel it. Now, typically, the engagement period would last something like a year, and they would live separately for their, for their, uh, with their families for about a year during this engagement period. And it served a function of kind of a, a trial, a test, if you will, a test of faithfulness. Now, if the woman turned out to be pregnant during this time, the husband would know it was not his child, and there was a provision in the law for them to be divorced. So, when you come to Joseph, and he hears that she is pregnant, what do you think he thought? Yeah. How would he respond to this? How would he treat her? I'm going to suggest to you he had compassion. He could have revealed this to the whole village. Hey, this woman that I was engaged to, she was unfaithful to me. And everybody would hate her, right? But instead, he has compassion. He could publicly declare this, but he chooses not to embarrass her. He chooses to put her away quietly out of respect for her. Now, y'all catch this. From the very start of the relationship, Joseph had a mind to put his bride's needs ahead of his own. He has a desire to have compassion on his wife, even when he is hurt and hurting. Guys, do you think that we can learn from Joseph? Yeah, I think we all can. One reason Scripture tells us that Joseph is righteous is this compassion. It is this trait, more than any other, which helps us to be like our God. When we love trying to be like God, for God so loved the world. Yeah. And when we, we all fall short, but when we try to do that, when we try to be more like our God, when we try to love as he loved, we will see our Christian life begin to head in the right direction. Once Christ told his disciples he was going away, he gave them one command to prepare them. What was it? Love. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. 
Now, in some ways, this command is as old as the Old Testament itself. Because in the law, they were commanded to love their neighbor as themselves. Sound familiar? Yeah. But there's one key difference. This command is to love. Both are. But this has a new level put at it. I was at lunch with uh, Bill Lee some time ago and another pastor, and we were discussing this passage. And Bill said, as he usually does with good insight, that, yeah, it's the same as the Old Testament, but it's new in that it has this new level. And what is the new level, the new standard to love as Christ loved? Now, that's a whole nother story. The Son of God gave himself. The Son of God sacrificed himself for us. That's the level of love. And we will never exhaust the level of love. We will never reach there, but we can always shoot for it. So Joseph had compassion. Next we see Joseph's unusual challenge. Joseph's unusual challenge, verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David. So right after mentioning his name, he gives him a title. Why this title? What was so significant about this? Well, it's significant because it's based on an Old Testament promise, a very important one in my estimation. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises David, you know, the greatest king in the Old Testament, King David, promises him, David, you will always have a son who has the right to rule on your throne. Big change. I mean, his predecessor, Saul, remember? How long did Saul's line last? <laughs> one generation, that was it. One and done. And he's saying to David, David, you're not going to be like that. David, you're a man after my own heart. David, I'm going to give you something special. You desire to do something for me, but I'm going to do something for you. You desire to build a house for me, I'm going to build a house for you, meaning a line. And that descendant of yours in each generation will always have the right to rule. Now, he did say to David that if he is disobedient, if he disobeys the law, if he turns his own way, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rebuke him. And if he turns back, okay. But if he continues and he hardens his heart against me, I may judge him. I may use other people to remove him from the throne. But... He's not taking away the right for David to have a son who is, has the right to rule. And so from generation to generation, he could always have that. God gives a new chance when people sin. God gives fresh waves of grace from time to time. I'm glad he does. This is one, a rather big wave of grace. <clears throat> For the king has come, 
They needed to be ruled by illegitimate kings no longer. The son of David has arrived. And though they've been without a son of David ruling on the throne for generations and many, many years, finally the son of God has shown up and he is a son of David and he will fulfill this promise God made all those centuries ago. The Jews could have their kingdom. They were looking for Messiah. They wanted the kingdom to be reestablished. And they could if they accepted this son of David coming through the line of Joseph. The kingdom could be restored. A world where everything seemed wrong could suddenly be made right. But all this was so new to Joseph. Well, the angel shared God's message with him. Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, if this happened today, if a couple came in, met with the pastor, and said, hey, you know, we've never been intimate, but nevertheless, we tested it, and she's PG. What do you think they would think? Nah, no. <laughs> well, wait a minute. You might say, well, this happened to Joseph and Mary. Isn't that a double standard or something? What gives? Well, here's the answer. Sometimes God does something so miraculous, so amazing, he only does it once. And this is a one-timer. He saves this one-time birth for this time, and he sends his son into the world. Well, People might ask, and, and, and Mary asked, how can this be? How can this happen? She wasn't unbelieving. She just didn't understand, how can this happen? Her pregnancy was induced by whom? The Holy Spirit. Now, a skeptic may not be able to accept this. But is anything too hard? Is anything too hard for our Lord? God created man without a woman. God created woman without the help of a mother. Can God create a baby's body without the help of a man? You bet. Now, I grant you that if any, any young couple came and said that she was PG and honest, we didn't do anything, well, doubt would abound. But God had a divine plan. In fact, this divine plan, he announced 700 years earlier. So we know that God had this miracle in store. Now, verse 21 she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. 
Now, what's so significant about this name Jesus? Well, first of all, in Hebrew, there's no J. You go through the Hebrew alphabet and there's no J. So it would sound more like Yeshua. Like the name Joshua today. That's what the name is. It comes from here. And it has a meaning in it. It means the Lord saves. Or Yahweh, God's name, Yahweh saves. So what is going to be associated with this child? Salvation, right? Yeah, salvation. So we're told from the beginning what it is he came to accomplish. Salvation. Because he will save his people from their sins. A company called Smart Cells International began offering a unique holiday gift. Christmas gift certificates for stem cell collection. (laughs) Yeah. Essentially, Smart Cells is offering to extract and store the blood from a baby's umbilical cord and freeze it for later use. And Stem cells are the master cells of life. They can be modified to meet whatever need the body has. And so they can collect it and and hopefully store it away. And if this person, this baby, ever gets sick, say with leukemia, they can bring those stem cells out and modify them to meet the need of that, that baby, now an adult. Now, what's the catch, you may ask? Well, the catch is the cost. They were going to charge about $2,400 to extract the blood cells and store them for about 25 years. $2,400, that's a big chunk for something that's unknown, right? Now, here's what the managing director of Smart Cells International said. Stem cells may seem to be an offbeat or even bizarre gift. But in effect, they are a long-lasting insurance policy that has a once-only purchase date. An insurance policy. 2,000 years ago, God gave humanity his own gift through a baby's birth and insurance policy against the deadliest disease known to man, sin. Sin. Sin is something we don't talk about much. I mean, when was the last time we said, that sounds like sin? Or, I just sinned. We don't talk like that much. But sin is a reality. And sin infects all humanity. And what we see, frankly, in the headlines and on the news feeds is really a reflection of that reality. Even though we don't talk about it, it's real. And it pollutes all of humanity. Sin is the ultimate pollutant. Forget about greenhouse gases. Sin is what pollutes the world today. 
And even though we as Christians are told what sin is, we are not an exempt. An honest person, we try to sin less, we try to be people of integrity, but does any Christian ever stop sinning for the rest of their lives? If, if you do that, I'd like to meet you. I want to know your secret, okay? I, I love it because I'm not there. Sin continues to sneak out when we're not on our guard. We try to be, we try to sin less, but we are not sinless. My grandpappy, my favorite relative, my grandpappy used to say, the man that says he never tells a lie, he's a liar. The man that admits I lie, he's a truth teller. Well, here's the truth. The Bible says we all sin. And the consequences of our sin is devastating. The Bible says the consequences or wages of sin is death. Now, it is true that people die, but I trace that back to the original couple in the Bible. Original sin is responsible for that. But for each and every one of us, we choose to sin, and sin drives a wedge between us and God. And for the unbeliever, if they are in that state for all of their lives and they don't heed the gospel, when they die, they are eternally separated from God. And God doesn't want that. And we don't want that. That's why I'm up here telling you this today. So everyone has the opportunity to hear. Well, here's the good news. You don't have to be separated from God. Oh, if you tried to stop sinning, you'd still be separated. Why? Because we can never be perfect like God. We can never be totally innocent. Even if I stop sinning today, I've got all those past sins to deal with right? And even one sin, James says, will separate us from God. So, we can't do it. Now we go to plan B. What's plan B? If we can't do it, somebody else has to. And the catch is that somebody has to be perfect without sin. So the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, suits up. He takes on a body, a body that can take our sin on himself. And he pays that price. He dies. He pays the penalty so that we can go to his place so that we can go to heaven. He came to our place so we could go to his place. Isn't that beautiful? World War II was drawing to a close, and the German army was sending children out on the front lines because they'd used up almost all their other soldiers, and they had too many fronts to cover, so they were bringing children and teenagers to do battle. And so on a particular time, there was a group of teenage soldiers that had just completed 
uh, rudimentary training, and they were sent out to the front. And right on the Rhine River, the uh, American soldiers had broken through and now were invading Germany. The war was going to end, and, and everybody knew it, but Germany was still sacrificing their children. And so this gentleman, Carl Schlesinger, later Dr. Carl Schlesinger, tells the story about what happened. They were on a slight rise, dug in, uh, two men to a foxhole just in front of a small city called Kirkhelen. And there they were to stop the advancing army. His particular battalion had about 80 kids in it. And there were three battalions, and, and so they were lined up to stop the American forces of tanks and soldiers. It was a hopeless battle, but there they were. And then something happened. Carl heard this sound over in this direction towards a farmhouse, so he stood up and fired off four shots real fast and then dropped back down in his foxhole. But then he describes it as something happened. There was an eerie silence. All fighting had stopped. And then they saw a man, an American soldier, walking toward him. Now, because he and his buddy were front and center, they were the first to see this individual. And the soldier was an American Indian. And as the soldier got close, they knew that he must know that he had machine guns trained on him, and yet he kept coming slowly. And he began to speak. Come on out. Come on out. Now, they could have killed him, but he risked his life because he saw how futile their defenses were and how hopeless the situation was for them. And so this American Indian, American soldier took it upon himself to do this. And he walked up at risk of his own life to save them. Well, they said to shoot him would have seemed like murder. He just wanted them to surrender. And so they, he and his buddy stood up put their guns down, took their helmet off, tossed it back in the foxhole. And the Indian turned around and started to walk slowly back to the American group of soldiers. And they and their buddies did the same. They walked back. Later, when, the, uh, then when they were in the American POW camp, of course they talked about this. And they talked about how brave this Indian must be, how self-sacrificing this Indian must be. And if he hadn't come, they would have died that day. I think you get the parallel. Just like this American Indian, Jesus Christ put his life on the line for us. Next, Joseph's unusual child. 
Verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. After church one Sunday, a young son asked his mom, Mom, what's a virgin? She thought, oh no, the time has come. And she sits down with him and she tells him about the facts of life in great detail. And when she's done, he says, no, mom, not that kind of virgin. The King James Virgin. Well, the verse that introduces us to the idea of the virgin birth is Isaiah 7:14, And this was given by God to the prophet Isaiah some 700 years before the birth of Christ. It reads like this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. Beautiful truth. Now, in recent times, skeptics have particularly focused their guns on this. And some have said, well, Isaiah got this from some pagan myth. It's not really about God or his son, this is about some pagan myth. And one example is often cited about Alexander the Great, this great king, this miraculous general. And supposedly the story goes like this. Uh, his father and mother, they were married. They, they, um, they were married and, and his mother has a visit from the god Zeus. Remember, they're Greek and they have this pagan god. So Zeus comes in the form of an animal or a snake and, and visits her. And when King Philip, her husband, hears about this, he loses all interest. And in spite of that, she still has a birth, this miraculous child. So I ask you, do you think that's the source of this? Well, no. First of all, was it a virgin birth? No. Husband and wife, they're married. But not only that, you look at the two stories and they are so dissimilar that no one rationally would conclude that one came from the other. No, this story came even before the birth of Alexander the Great, centuries before. And it was announced, the announcement came before. And Isaiah presented this to God's people. Isaiah is focused on the coming one, this babe. This one who would be born and born to do something great. Look what Isaiah says two chapters later. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government 
will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty, yeah, Everlasting Father. Like George Washington is the father of our country, Jesus would be the father of his. And then finally, he's called Prince of Peace. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne. I'm going to stop here for just a minute. And um, this verse gets read in this country and around the world this time every year by no doubt thousands of churches. And almost nobody ever stops to explain what this is talking about. And so I want to give you my take. You know, some years I've kind of skipped over it and I thought, I wonder what they're thinking. What, what, what is that rain? What does it look like? Well, here's the thing. That rain is to be a rain of righteousness. That rain is to be a rain of peace. And I want to ask you honestly, as you think in your mind about the state of this world today, Does that describe Jesus' reign today? I don't think so. And a lot of others don't think so. In fact, I go back with the original view of the, the early church. For the first two centuries here, uh, right after Christ, the early church, universally, they believed that his reign was yet future. It would be associated with his return, his second coming. And that's what I, I view this as. I don't think that his righteous reign of peace is currently now taking place. But what I do believe is if it's promised in Scripture, and it is, it's promised to Israel, and not only that, but it's promised to expand, to include the nations as well. Israel and the nations, and Israel will be the head, and the nations will follow after Israel, and this promised Messiah would come to rule. And I believe that if he's not done it yet, and it's obviously true that he has not yet done this, the word of God is true, and someday he will. And to that I say, come Lord Jesus. All right, let's, let's go on. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Question, how special is this child? Incredibly special. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Could this babe born to Joseph and Mary live up to that name? He can and he did. Colossians 1.15, he is the invisible, uh, the image of the invisible God. And the firstborn, this word here means first in rank, over all creation. Colossians 2, 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. 
Jesus verified his identity. The same spirit which placed him in Mary's womb also empowered him to do great and miraculous things, only befitting the Son of God. For example, raising the dead, casting out demons, causing a storm in the middle of the sea to stop just at a word. Jesus is Emmanuel. Well, this is no ordinary child. Next, we see Joseph's unusual compliance. Verse 24. When Joseph woke up after he'd had this dream, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home to be his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. I appreciate that Joseph did this. This was no easy thing. Imagine God saying to him, as he later did say, after Mary had had the dream, this is, this is the child that God has created in Mary. At this point, he had to put away his skepticism. I'm sure he had thoughts, but he embraced the truth of God, and he, he did what it said. You know, sometimes God does things like this, seems to put up a roadblock. You know, Joseph's going to do one thing. He's going to put her away quietly. And then God says, whoop, stop. I've got a different plan. And that roadblock can happen to us today. We can have our plans. Maybe you've got your plan. And God may, boom, put up a roadblock. Ever been there? I have. Okay. So what do we do when that happens? Well, I've got my plan. <laughs> when it becomes clear what God's will is, especially from the scriptures, what are we going to do? Hopefully, put our choices aside and do what God says. That's the best thing. Well, Joseph obeyed. He got to marry a tremendous girl whom God chose to be the mother of Jesus. Can you imagine anything more special than that? Several years ago, I heard the story of a man named Larry Walters. He was a 33-year-old single guy. Um, he had some friends, and he just he wanted to see the world from a new perspective. And so he went out to a local army surplus store, and he bought 42 weather balloons. And he came home. And his friends helped him rig this up. And he, he tied the weather balloons after they were inflated to a lawn chair. And he was going to go up and see things from a different view from up there. He figured, oh, you know, this will probably lift a, 100 feet or so, and I'll get to see things from a different point of view. And along with that, he, he thought he'd stay for a while, so he took a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, a six-pack of beer, and a pellet gun. And he thought when he got tired of being aloft, he would begin to shoot the balloons one by one until he came down gently. That was his plan. Now, on this particular day, his friends helped him. He got in the chair. They untethered it, and he's off. 
But he didn't stop at 100 feet. In fact, he took loft. He took flight up incredibly fast. And he leveled off somewhere above 14,000 feet. And he was directly in the landing path of Los Angeles International Airport. <laughs> I can just imagine a conversation between planes flying by and the guy in the control tower. <laughs> well, he was up for hours. But finally, when they did get him back down on the ground, the police first sighted him. And then the reporters got a hold of him. They asked him three questions. They asked him first, were you scared? Yes. <laughs> Second question, would you do it again? No. <laughs> Third question, why did you do it? And his response was, you just can't just sit there. And his story, of course, went viral. And I think he did an interview on Johnny Carson show or something. Anyway, when um, a pastor, Gary Gonzalez, heard this and heard why he said what he said, as he was going through the Gospels, the story of Christ, he thought about that and thought about how well that applied to us. We can't just sit there. When we read the Word of God and we get some idea of what God wants, we can't just sit on our hands, right? We need to do something. So here's the part where we get to be challenged. And there are two challenges this morning. Two examples to follow. First, Joseph was a considerate husband. Mary and Joseph both lived in the same town. And so these two people were living in Nazareth and they were engaged to be married when one day suddenly an angel told Mary that she was going to have a child. Not by normal human generation, but by the overwhelming of the Holy Spirit. Mary was looking forward to her wedding day. But now, what would Joseph think when she tells him about this baby? What is he going to think? What is he going to say? What is he going to do? Well, put yourself in Joseph's place. He thought Mary had always told the truth. Her previous character had always been blameless. But now, her story seemed unreal and strange. Joseph could have been very cruel toward Mary. He could have shamed her. He could have exposed her supposed unfaithfulness to the village and had everybody condemn her. But he didn't do that. His desire was to be a compassionate husband, even though he thought he'd been jilted. I mean, this is the height of the major decision in marriage. Are you going to be loving and loyal to somebody you think has been unfaithful to you? And that's his desire. No wonder he is called a righteous man. God so loved the world, he didn't love us because we deserved it. He loved us because that's the nature of God. And if we want to be like God in our character, we need to be loving. There will be people 
who will say things to you. Does that ever happen at the holidays? <laughs> say things that are harsh or condemning or you disagree over politics or whatever? What's our response going to be? This, this, this is where I struggle. And I bet some of you do too. Will we be compassionate? Even when our human nature wants to give it to them. <laughs> Will we be like Joseph? Will we be compassionate? Will we have love and demonstrate that love in tangible ways to people around us? Joseph was a considerate husband. Several decades ago, there was a conductor on the Pennsylvania Railroad whose wife had suddenly taken ill with cancer. He uh, took a leave of absence from his job and he stayed, stayed home every day to care for his ailing wife. And he loved her and he was around the clock care, except for brief times he'd go to the grocery store, things like that. And people that came over, they would see how he loved his wife, though now ailing and her body wasting away. But they would hear him say, Mother, you're still my sweetheart. Mother, you're still my sweetheart. That's the kind of love Joseph had. And husbands here today, may we take a lesson from Joseph. Joseph was a considerate husband. Second, Joseph was an obedient servant. Joseph was willing to turn, uh, to turn everything over to God and to do his bidding. He was obedient when the angel had explained to him how Mary had come to be with child. Joseph was minded to put her away, but Matthew 24, uh, 124 says that after the angel had spoken to him, when Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. Joseph did exactly as the angel had told him to do. Joseph didn't understand the how and the why of the whole thing, but he acted in simple faith on the word of God to him. May that be an example for us. Joseph was an obedient servant. Today, we're at a crossroads. Will we be quick to obey God? Or will we evaluate which is the better option? You know, which gives me more pleasure? If I count up the options A or B, which one is going to be better for me in the long run? Give me more money. Give me better opportunities. We could cheat or we can obey. Will we obey completely? My friends, partial obedience is disobedience. Will we obey later? You know, after I've had my chance to live my life and do it my way, then I'll get on board. Well, the problem with that is we don't know what's coming up. 
This may be the one shot we have to get it right. The one time we have to obey God. Tomorrow, we could be standing before God. And when we are standing before God, whether it's soon or late, we'll always be glad we obeyed. Let's be obedient servants of God. Father God, we love you. We thank you for what you did at this season long ago. We thank you that you sent your son, your beloved son, to earth. And he humbly came. And he sacrificed himself. He came to serve you and he came to serve others. Father God, may that be a model for us. May we be obedient servants at this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.